had some friends who uh, travelled at the new airport last summer, the, the Robin Hood Airport, and uh, I think it was a bit of a sort of one-man outfit when they went. I feel a bit like that today. They said when they sort of checked in, the guy who checked them in and weighed the bags was the guy who sort of welcomed them onto the plane, and I, I feel very much like that today. So. But it would be a great help to you, if you, to me and to you, I think, if you turn back to 1 Samuel 16, which is on page 287 in the Church Bibles, uh, as we begin this new series. Page 287, 1 Samuel 16. Television has undoubtedly changed the way we evaluate our leaders. In his influential book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman contrasts the assessment of modern-day American presidents with their less-than-televisual forebears. Uh, So the 27th president of the USA was one William Howard Shaft, who weighed in at a hefty 300 pounds. Uh, Postman comments that the shape of a man's body is largely irrelevant to the shape of his ideas when he's addressing a public in writing or on radio. But it is quite relevant on television. The grossness of a 300-pound image, even a talking one, would easily overwhelm any logical or spiritual subtleties conveyed by speech. In our increasingly image-orientated culture, what matters is style, not substance. So in 1960, the American electorate watched their first televised debate between presidential nominees Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, And amongst television viewers, at least, Kennedy was regarded as the outright winner. Why? Well, because he looked good. He appeared tanned and confident and well-rested after campaigning in California. By contrast, his opponents had recently spent two weeks in hospital for a serious knee operation and he looked underweight and pale and he refused any makeup to improve his appearance. On that occasion, at least, image triumphed over ideas. What matters was not what you could understand, but what you could see. I think it's fair to say that the same problem plagues the UK political scene. It's not that photogenic politicians can't also be women and men of substance, it's just that many of us are just not that bothered either way. If they look good, we imagine they must be good. Uh, We are tempted to judge every political book by its cover. Now, of course, such a superficial assessment of people is true in many areas of life, isn't it? It's very, very easy to look at people and to make a judgment. Now, why else are there so many makeover programs on television? Why else do people go to such extraordinary lengths to change the way they look? Is it not because, for many of us, our default mode is to look to the outward appearance and not on the heart? Young people weighing up the elderly. The elderly assessing the youth. It's remarkably easy to judge people according to their outward appearance, whether it's their clothes or their hairstyle or their homes. And sadly, such a superficial assessment of others is true even in the church, not least when we're looking for leaders. Do we look in the first place for gifting or godliness? Do we want a big personality or a great gospel heart? For Israel in 1 Samuel 16, the question of what to look for in a leader was a pressing one. Uh, The book, if you remember, opens during a very turbulent period in Israel's history. Throughout the time of the Judges, which is the book that precedes this, Israel had lurched from one political crisis to another. A downward spiral of religious apostasy and moral corruption left the nation fragmented and disintegrating. 
And so 1 Samuel opens with a depressing picture of a compromised and degenerate leadership where corruption went to the very heart of the religious establishment. The priesthood itself was rotten to the core. So Eli the priest honoured his wicked sons more than he honoured the Lord. And in the midst of such bleak and desperate days, the Lord raised up a prophet, Samuel. And Samuel would prepare the way for God's promised king. One or two Samuel as books detail the emergence of the monarchy within Israel's life. So at the end of the book of Judges, there was no king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in 1 and 2 Samuel, God gives the people a king so that his people would do what was right before his eyes. Now Saul was Israel's first king and the people's clamour for his leadership is actually very revealing. As far back as Deuteronomy 17, God had made provision for kingship in Israel and through Moses, God had detailed the kind of king that the people needed. Now, Israel was actually fairly uninterested in such theological detail. They wanted a leader. They wanted a strong leader. In fact, they wanted a king just like the other nations. Now, the world, not the word, set the agenda. In Walter Lippmann's memorable phrase, people will welcome manacles to stop their hands from shaking. Now, fundamentally, Israel's problem was like our own. We don't want God to be king. Now, hence the media incredulity and derision at Tony Blair's suggestion that one day we will have to give an account to God as our judge. We do not want God to be our king. So earlier on in this book, God says to Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. And what follows actually is one of those really terrifying moments in the Bible when God gives his people what they want rather than what they need. So he gives them Saul. As it turns out, he was a fitting monarch for Israel. A disobedient king for a disobedient people. Just as Israel rejected God's rule in their request for a king, so Saul rejected God's rule through his disobedience as a king. And chapter 15 of this book is the turning point in Saul's rule. It's a sobering account of his sin. Sin that he attempts to deny and excuse and justify. Saul rejected the word of the Lord and so the Lord rejected him as king. And so chapter 16 opens a new chapter in Israel's experience. And the first thing to notice from this chapter is this. God's rule is real but surprising verses 1 to 13. God's rule is real, but surprising. 
It's striking if you read the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, there is divine grief in human sin. Samuel grieved, but the Lord grieved too. Now, human responsibility for sin doesn't diminish the reality of divine sorrow over sin. It grieves the Lord that we disobey him. But grief is not the same as despair. And so, in verse 1 of chapter 16, there is an inappropriateness in the persistent sorrow of Samuel. Now, of course, if you stand in Samuel's shoes for a moment, everything does seem hopeless. After all, Samson to Saul would have kept the tabloids busy for weeks. Turbulent days these might have been for God's people, but in the midst of Samuel's grief, there is a reminder of Yahweh's promise. It is the promise of a king, verse 1. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. It is ever true, isn't it, that God's promises do not actually remove us from a world of difficulty. God's promises give us courage and confidence in the midst of a world of difficulty. As Jesus puts it, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. God's rule is real. God's promises stand. And that remains true, whatever you might be facing at the moment. Now for Samuel and the people, the world was indeed full of trouble. There's more than a hint of it in verse 2. Israel was living under the rule of an increasingly insecure and despotic ruler in Saul. How can I go, Samuel says? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And if Samuel feared Saul, it's little wonder that the people feared Samuel. Wasn't he Saul's right-hand man? Wasn't he the one who anointed Saul as king? So had Samuel then come to bring trouble for the people of Bethlehem, verse 4. When Samuel arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked him, do you come in peace? And yet in the midst of a world of difficulty... 1 Samuel 16 is a reminder that God's rule is real. Now, of course, at the time, life must have seemed incredibly difficult. Israel lurching from one crisis to the next, and the, and the future seemed both frightening and uncertain. But amidst the threats of Saul and the fears of the people, God promised to raise up a true king for his people. And so Samuel journeys to an obscure Middle Eastern town, Bethlehem to the place where God promises that his king will be found. And what follows is a leadership contest with all the marks of a 21st century political beauty parade, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. It does make you wonder what clinched it for Samuel, doesn't it? Now, what was it that he saw in Eliab that was so impressive? Did he have the the X factor? Did he have the perfect smile and Jim Hone physique? 
Was he perhaps wearing, if not the right tie, the right tunic? What was it that was so impressive? Of course, it all seems ridiculous to make those kind of suggestions until you remember that the people chose Saul because he was very tall. Fortunately, a criteria that the wardens didn't apply when they were choosing Paul as vicar. Now, how fickle and superficial our assessment of other people often is, not least our assessment of those we want as our leaders. And so the Lord's devastating indictment, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, the triumph of style over substance is nothing new. We are easily seduced by outward appearances. We look to the visible, not to the heart. And so Samuel faces Jesse's son. And who goes? Well, God decides. And when the divine vote is counted, well, Eliab's going home. And so verse 8 is Abinadab. And Shamnar, verse 9, and four other brothers from the household of Jesse. And Samuel, it seems, is getting increasingly desperate, verse 11. Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sends and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. See, God's rule is real. He will provide a king, but it is also surprising. See, who would have thought of it? The youngest son. He didn't even get an invite to the interview. He was stuck out on the hills of the family farm tending sheep. But the Lord said, this is the one. Chosen. Anointed, spirit-filled, a shepherd king for Israel. Now David was a surprising king. He was actually a great king too. As we'll see over the next few weeks, the contrast between David and Saul was very marked. And yet, although David was a great king, he was not a perfect king. And his rule ends not in triumph, but tragedy. And so the rest of the Old Testament looks for another king. The true promised king. A son of David, a truly faithful king who would rule over God's people forever. And of course the amazing witness of history is that God's rule is real. It is real even if it is surprising. And so hundreds of years later the lineage of David leads to Joseph. And the pregnancy of a young unmarried mother. The census of a pagan ruler. 
the opposition of another despotic king and the surprising birth of a baby in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. God's promised king, Jesus. The good shepherd. Chosen. Anointed. Spirit filled. Crowned not on a cross. Not on a throne. But on a cross. God's rule is real. Even if it is surprising. Of course to the, to the world it is, it is foolishness. As Alistair Campbell famously put it, we don't do God. But to those of us who are being saved, to anyone who will trust in and depend on this King, here is the power of God in the most surprising of places. Here, as we will remember this morning, as we break bread and drink wine, here is the Good Shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. God's rule is real, but surprising. Secondly, God's rule is difficult, but beneficial. Verses 14 to 23. God's rule is difficult, but beneficial. Now I say that God's rule is difficult, because the observance among you will have noticed verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, read a verse like that and most of us want to reach for the theological panic button. The wise preacher would do well to ignore it and hope that a flagging congregation doesn't notice. So drawing attention to it probably isn't such a good idea. Of course, if it has to be mentioned, one could excuse it as a slip of the scribal quill, slip of the scribal quill, and move on. <laughs> but if verse 14 was an editor's mistake, our writer was having a particularly bad day, because he actually repeats himself several times. You get it verse 14 first, and then you get it in verse 15, and then verse. 16, and then, just in case we've not noticed, he wraps up the whole section and mentions it again in verse 23. Oh, he wants you to notice. What is a source of embarrassment for us seems to be an expression of confidence for him. See, if God's rule is meaningful in any sense, he must somehow be sovereign over all things, mustn't he? Or is the universe some sort of Star Wars, some sort of dualistic battle between the Force and the dark side, with the outcome hanging in the balance? Or if God is playing some sort of game of cosmic chess, ever vulnerable to a knockout move from his malevolent opponent, if that's how the universe is, then all Christian confidence is gone. It's gone. We can be certain of nothing. And we must dismiss the huge chunks of the Bible that express certainty as pitiful, wishful thinking. And yet, if God's rule is real, and the Bible certainly says that it is, it is nevertheless difficult. Very difficult. And verses like this highlight the problem. 
how can we reconcile God's absolute sovereign power with the horrendous evil that permeates our world? No problem is more difficult intellectually or experientially. No problem. Now, of course, the existence of evil isn't only a problem for Christians. It is a problem for anyone. Now, Pierce Ben, who's a lecturer at Imperial College, puts it like this. Evil is an awesome problem for which no solution seems wholly persuasive. If we do not believe in God, then for all the humanist bravado about facing up honestly to our condition and being as good and as happy as we can, we cannot hope that in the end all shall be well. It's a problem not just for Christians, but for anyone. But then what can we say as Christians? You see, the Bible is careful to stress that God's sovereignty in no way diminishes human responsibility. God is in charge, but we are responsible. There's a French writer called Henri Blocher who puts it very well. He says, Holy Scripture rejects as blasphemy the least hint that God be the accomplice of evil, that he should harbour its seed in his heart. God is utterly, radically, absolutely good. The testimony to the perfect justice and goodness of God is one of the constants of Scripture. Praise takes delight in it, never wearies of it. The Lord has eyes too pure to look upon evil. He cannot even tolerate the sight without his indignation being stirred. Let no sinner imagine that he can avoid blame by imputing the causality to God. God neither tempts nor is tempted. And so the extraordinary thing is that in the Bible you have in chapter 15 Saul's sin for which he was wholly responsible. Sin that he attempted to deny and excuse and justify and yet for which he was wholly responsible. And then in the very next chapter, chapter 16, we read of God's complete sovereignty. God's rule that is so complete that somehow even an evil spirit such as the one that tormented and troubled Saul cannot act independently of God's sovereign will. How can this be? Again, Blocher is helpful. Scripture teaches us that we shall not find, at least in this life, the rational solution that so many have sought after. It does not give us that answer. In fact, it goes much further than that. It turns its floodlights on the difficulty and invites us to take a different step. Evil is not there to be understood, but to be fought. 
the absence of any solution to the theoretical problem of the emergence of evil is one side of the coin. The other side, something still more precious than righteous indignation, is the solution to the practical problem of the suppression of evil. It is the sovereignty of God who fights against evil and who invites us to join him in the battle. See, God's rule is difficult, but it is beneficial. And it is beneficial for a whole host of reasons. See, it's beneficial because the future does not hang in the balance. God will triumph in the end. As Paul puts it in the New Testament, in the end, Jesus who suffered the full weight of the world's evil will destroy all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When everything else in life seems uncertain, whether it is relationships or finances or health, Know that the God who rules, his victory is certain and what he has promised, he will deliver. God's rule is difficult. But it is beneficial, the future is not uncertain. And it's beneficial because actually it means that we have both grounds for and confidence to fight with God against evil. Evil is not what men decide or DNA determine. Evil is not social constructs or genetic determinism. God is good and evil is evil. And so we must fight with every fibre of our being, both the evil we find in our own hearts and the evil we find in this fallen world. God's rule is difficult. But it is beneficial. The future is not uncertain. We have grounds to fight against evil. But it is also beneficial because actually God's rule brings comfort whether we acknowledge it or not. God's rule brings comfort whether we acknowledge it or not. You know, even under the judgment of God, Saul enjoys the blessings of God's king. Is that not surprising? The rejected king unknowingly seeks solace and comfort from God's chosen king and amazingly he finds it David the brave man and warrior was it seems also a fine musician and whenever verse 23 the spirit from God came upon Saul David would take his harp and play then relief would come to Saul he would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him How great is the generosity of our God that even a man who has rebelled and stands under God's judgment nevertheless enjoys the blessing of his ruling king. And the same of course is true for our world, isn't it? A world under God's judgment nevertheless enjoys some of the blessings of God's ruling king. You know, Christianity has given us some of the greatest music ever written. It has given us some of the greatest artwork ever painted. 
It gave us the worldview through which modern science was born. It has led to the abolition of slavery and huge social reform in this country. Christianity has shaped our legal system, our parliamentary democracy, our healthcare provision and the hospice movement. Christians have in large measure contributed to many of the personal and social benefits that we enjoy and largely take for granted. We are, as one writer pointed out, living off borrowed capital. We're living off borrowed capital. Now, of course, people belittle such contributions, conflating corrupt religion with genuine Christianity and laying all the world's woes at the door of the Christian church. Christianity, it is alleged, is responsible for much of the world's suffering. But as Os Guinness has pointed out, whatever our personal views of religion, that statement is simply and factually wrong and its lazy repetition seriously distorts public debate and, de and endangers democratic freedom. God's rule is difficult. But it is amazingly beneficial, both for individuals and for societies, whether we acknowledge it or not. That was true for Saul. So it is for us. You know, it is a great thing to live under the rule of God's King. Following Jesus is not just one way to live, it is the very best way to live. Now, of course, we don't always believe that, do we? Easy to think that somehow, being a Christian, we're missing out. Our rejecting Christ's rule may be easier, but it is certainly not better. I have come, Jesus said, that you might have life, and have life in all its fullness. Christ's rule is sometimes difficult but his rule really is for our good